Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA monthly livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your question though we'll take we'll a break get started in just a moment too. but with all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to our monthly livestream Q&A here for SFIA. Today we'll be joined as usual by my uh, wife and lovely co-host Sarah Fowler-Arthur, who will be reading your questions off from the chat, as well as from some of our moderators like Sindri who is kind enough to join us to get some questions on there. And as usual, please try to get your questions in in as legible and straightforward a fashion as possible to make it a little bit easier for them to uh, translate over to us. So, uh, with all that said, uh, we'll be going for our usual about one hour with a break about halfway in between for about four or five minutes. And uh, we'll probably do a lightning round near the end to go through as many questions as we can that we have a chance to give some time to. But as a warning, Sarah and I just got in from a one-week trip, so we're still getting a little bit... Uh, jet lag so my apologies in advance if i'm a little bit uh slower than i should be to respond on some things or make any mistakes that i said let's get started very good well our first question was from johnny wings we had a, a number of folks putting questions in before we got started today which is great and johnny says hi isaac and sarah i love your show do you think technology will ever advance to the point when it is too complex for humans to understand perhaps <laughs> after years of ai development you know, this is one of those questions that comes up a lot of times in regard to the technological singularity or just trying to forecast how things are going to work out in terms of who's doing the research. And the usual idea is if you get sufficiently advanced technology, you get super intelligent AI, that the AI is doing all the actual research. Um, e m Banks in his cultural series plays with this concept quite a lot too. So there's some pitfalls he looks at that I suggest. But I would say no because fundamentally... Um, what what qualifies as a person in your civilization is likely to be at least partially based off of what actually is getting work done. And so if you have super intelligent cyborgs or AI doing these things, they'll likely be considered what everything was humans anyway. The other thing to keep in mind is that it's not necessarily a sign that somehow humanity's become their pets or things like that. That could happen, but right now in our civilization, most of us who actually understand the sciences are a minority, and we still only understand our own science and narrow subfield. Even my own field of physics, there are areas I don't really understand all that well, and I don't know much about biology or chemistry that a second or third year student wouldn't know, and yet that has nothing to do with whether or not I understand new areas of science or vice versa for an export, and has nothing to do with, you know, our civilization going forward in terms of most people not knowing that. Our next question... The answer was yes. What? <laughs> Go ahead. I believe he said the short answer was yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Our next question here is uh, a super chat, actually, and we thank you for all those super chats that I'm seeing pop up in the feed, and we appreciate your support. This is uh, $20 from Miami's Last Capitalist, and he wants to know, what could it be like to experience the universe splitting because you cause a paradox, such as using a suicide-packed FTL? What happens if you're not deleted from time? Would you get a new universe, or only things causally related to you? A long one. Uh, thank you, by the way. I think uh, that might be more of. Um, good question. One of the problems is I don't know the answer, because 
fundamentally, if, if you do have two alternate timelines, you don't really know what's going on in the other one, and that includes whether or not it exists. Um, I, mean, I guess we have a lot of Rick and Morty fans on the show. might remember, I think it was the Season 2 or 3 opener, where they accidentally uh, caused a, a uh, time paradox like that, and that ends with uh, some four-dimensional beings going back in time and beating up on Albert Einstein uh, to, to end the paradox, uh, or to create a self-creating one. Um, I don't think you'd be able to actually talk to someone who was in an alternate timeline or observe them or react to them in any way, even though they existed in that sense, because you just create another alternate timeline as well, in which you did not do that and so forth. Um, you know, we have this concept of all these different options that could spring out from the same point, but when they start trying to weave back together, you get problems. Um, and some of those are things like conservation of energy, which, again, a conservation of energy in of itself is not the end of the world if you don't have that function. General relativity doesn't really do that well with it in the first place. But what happens if I take a timeline and I move a piece of matter from one into the other? Now, one of those universes has less mass in it, energy and mass are not been conserved. And the other one has more. And of course, because it has more, it has more particles in it that each have branching timelines. And we screwed out that in our uh, episode, Parallel Universes and Alternate Realities, and we're going to be looking at that more in our Alternate Timelines episode. But I think that's that's the kind of critical one there is, if you do split your universe apart like that, if that's actually even something you can do, because again, you can start getting energy uh, conservation issues with that too. I don't think there's going to ever be any way you'd be able to talk to that person or try to knit things back together again. Uh, though it does make for good sci-fi, and, and really bad sci-fi too. Uh, I remember there was one Highlander-esque one that was based on multiple realities. I think the Chet Lee started it, where he was going around uh, killing copies of himself to kind of like uh, end up as the one true uh, copy of himself. Was that the steer at the camera? Okay. <laughs> My wife often sends me hand signals while we're doing this. They usually speed up, slow down, or steer at the camera. We're out of practice. All right, so, next question, please. <laughs> yes, that, that's called uh, look at the camera, not the computer. Mm -hmm. um, just a guy with guns. When looking for life in the universe, would it be best to start with bar galaxies as the formation of the bar may allow for enough time for life to emerge? Okay. Uh, I'll unpack that one real quick for folks. Um, we usually try to figure out when we have a galaxy that actually has a high enough metallicity rate and star formation rate. Um, and in, in a packed enough area that you can actually get terrestrial planets, rocky terrestrial planets. And one of the things we found out recently um, is that stars probably have been, or galaxies even have started to form as early as 300 million years, if not sooner, after the, uh, the Big Bang. So we have no very hard model right now for when a rocky planet could have formed or how they could have formed uh, in high probability. Um, there's actually something we kind of have looked at in the gravity aliens hypothesis, which tries to kind of mathematize the uh, rare intelligence or rare Earth camp. And yes, we will be doing an episode on gravity aliens soon. I, I wrote it a few weeks back. Um, that's been getting asked about that a lot recently. Um, but I don't know that a bald galaxy is necessarily going to have a much faster rate of formation in that regard. They would not be a bad candidate for it. But the other thing to keep in mind is that so much of early galaxy formation in that period is them eating each other when they're small little proto-galaxies. You know, what we look at in terms of a bigger galaxy these days, um, they were much smaller. Like the ones we just saw in James Webb, those were galaxies of like a billion stars, 300 million years in. And when their major activity is running into each other uh, and eating each other up, and, and that's likely to set up star formation waves too, that might tend to dominate up with that early structure. Like. 
All right. The next question is from This Is New. I think it was like three in a row. They said, I'm not sure and I don't know. <laughs> well, you might know this one. Uh, this one is from This Is New. Hi, Isaac and Sarah. Since radiators cannot radiate into a hotter environment than themselves, how can you cool the hardware of a Stelazer inside the Corona, which is at a million degrees? A good question. You can actually radiate into something that is hotter than yourself. Uh, this is one of those thermodynamics issues that can kind of be confusing people because it's a physical process. Um, there are three types of ways you move heat around, convection, conduction, and radiation. Radiation, by default, is when you're going to be emitting photons into, in this case, a vacuum. Um, and then, of course, conduction is when you're touching something and heat into it, and convection is when like, a loose gas moves between them. So, classic example, I'm touching a hot metal ball that's conducting that's hot red, in uh, the steam coming up off the thing of a pot of water is convection, and radiation is the light coming out that glowing red ball. Planets and other things in a vacuum can only move energy by emitting photons, radiation. Now, with something like a star laser, we'll say, well, the surface of the sun is 6,000 degrees. And we say, well, you know what? The corona of the sun is actually more like a million degrees. People think space is cold, right? It is not. Most of space and most of the solar system is actually a good deal hotter than this planet in our area. Um, the average temperature of the solar system, since 99.8% of it is the sun, is uh, probably close to about a million degrees. Uh, and the corona around the sun is very hot. Do not be confused with the idea that how much heat is in something is the same as what its temperature is. You'll think heat in mind is, if I take a bunch of photons that happen to be the equivalent of a billion Kelvin in terms of their temperature, or their, their photon energy, and I send that as a diffuse beam towards some area that is the Antarctica, that might only have a few watts of power in it, and that whole area might warm up by something you could barely measure with a, your, your best instruments. But that doesn't mean that a radiator is not going to work right now in that because there's a million degree temperature there, right? They're all mixing concepts here that don't necessarily apply well in the vacuum of space. The corona is ridiculously thin, uh, even compared to the sun's photosphere, which is a lot thinner than our own atmosphere. So keeping that in mind, it's not an issue. So long as you are blocking more radiation from, you know, hideots than it's trying to emit, you're going to need colder. Good reminder on how those things are... Uh moving. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Andrew Hartley, thank you for your super chat, 999. What specific technologies or sciences could a college student study today that would aid us in the construction and management of a space elevator? Hmm. Finance. <laughs> it's going to be incredibly expensive. I mean, almost everything on the front end of this right now is waiting patiently for us to get a piece of technology that is, uh, you know, a letting us do the really cheap superconductors and and magnetic shields that will let us do an active support space elevator, or b, of course, the really strong material, something stronger than graphene, or c, a way to make graphene in really long sheets and chains um, cheaply, yeah, really cheaply, at least you know, cheap as a say uh, a mile of highway, like right? you got to make forty thousand kilometers of stuff to get up to the right height in space. Um, and uh, so when you're thinking about the size of elevators, by the way, for space elevators and Earth, always think about something that's going to roughly wrap itself around the equator of this planet. That's the length this thing has to be. And that has to be very impressively engineered if you try to do that from a material that needs to rely on not cracking. But uh, is it something that we're going to be able to do with the existing technologies? If we do enough resources at it, yes. So 
I would say that finance actually is, well, a tongue-in-cheek answer, probably the right one. It's us figuring out how to best do those, but um, those are the areas that mostly have to be at. You have to figure out where are we getting the funds for this. We've got to figure out maybe the marketing of it is how we convince people they want to do it. But then for the technology end, uh, magnetic shielding, warm temperature superconductors, a better power source of storage, and, of course, it'd be better graphene, things like that production-wise. Any of those can give you the pathway to making a space elevator active. And even if they fail to get you that, they'll get you things that will be almost as good and many other cool things with it. All right. We'd like to welcome uh, Jan back to the mods chat. Thank you for jumping in to help. <laughs> and we have a question here from David Reeves. Imagine a civilization that developed at a time when their observable universe had already expanded over the horizon and out of view forever. Could they work out reality? Okay, so... Um, by the way, since you just mentioned that, again, I mentioned Sindri earlier. There are a lot of people on the show on the back end who help out a lot. And uh, they're often here in the chat, too. So if you see them or run into them in the chat or the comments, please say hello and thanks if you enjoy the walk because they make this stuff, I wouldn't necessarily say much possible, it's so much easier and keep me sane. And me, too. Uh, it's always good to have a stain wipe. Sane or. <laughs> I just noticed up on the screen there's a little logo there for a podcast, uh, Space and Science Futurism one. That's linked in the uh, in the uh, episode description today. That's an interview I recently did with Ben Sinclair. He's got a new science podcast, and uh, you know, go check that out afterwards if you're looking for more content. And while I'm thinking about it for everybody else, we do have that poll going on for episode topics that I, I pushed about, out about an hour ago out on the community tab. Make sure you go there and vote for one of those episodes. Those all came over from Reddit. So our Reddit group is uh, also linked there. Yes, the question uh, was basically what happens if your civilization is born late in the universe and it's already spread out beyond the cosmological horizon. There's nothing to see. There's just your star, your planet, maybe a few other stars nearby. Can you ever figure the universe out? And the answer is yes. We talked about that a little bit in Edge of the Universe. Um, this is the concept essentially that I can still see the redshift for a long time afterwards of these things that are leaving over the horizon. They leave a ghostly image. I can also see it by other things that didn't quite make it over the horizon. But then there's the other aspect of this, which kind of goes back to that grabby aliens hypothesis that we will say for that episode, is that if you have a civilization's early expanding, these rapidly expanding early civilizations, you're not going to have any stars left over that nobody got to like that. So you have the possibility maybe for somebody who was born like a cosmic void uh, that was very thin out, it was just their star. But and even then, they could still figure that out now, and I really wouldn't give them good odds of just happy to be born and have a planet that was long enough lived to last trillions of years. So they should always be able to figure out the evidence, but they have a much bigger initial investment. But that might be it only takes some extra time, which is not that much on the grand scheme. The next question here is from Bob Hopeldorf. How likely do you think it is that we develop nantennas with efficiencies of 80% or more before the century is out? I don't know what the current state of terahertz rectifiers is, but I heard graphene CNT can handle that question. See, nantennas or rectennas? Nantennas. Okay. Um, <clears throat> we have rectennas that are already up in the 85 and 90% range of memory soils. I'm going to have to punt on that one, though, just because I'm not quite familiar with, the, with the, what the zone is on that. When we're trying to send photons around things, and radio is an example of that, so as um, you know, other things besides uh, photons we can send that with, too. But 
Photons can absorb, they transmit themselves through electricity in the material, like a semiconductor. That's how a, that's how a photovoltaic electric solar panel cell works, which the ones you see all over the place. See our future solar power episode for more of the details on that. But some frequencies are a lot easier for us to do well on those within the waves. Radio in general, we can do better with So we like them for power transmission because they wouldn't be blinding us, they wouldn't be screwing up the night sky, and they would allow us to send power at a much higher efficiency rate than solar panels. Like right now, if I want to take some energy in my house and beam it out to my uh, well, my tractor out in the field because I'm going to solar power my tractor, right? There are big solar power panels up inside my house and uh, collector on the other end of solar panel on my uh, my tractor. I can beam energy to my tractor as a laser. Um, the problem is that each step of the way, I'm probably losing about more than half, well, more than half, on each step of converting that light into electricity, turning that electricity back into a laser beam, sending that laser beam through the air to the uh, to the tractor, and then having the tractor convert that back into horsepower, electricity and horsepower. At that point in time, I have lost a lot. So something that's 90% converting at each step makes that a lot more bearable and makes powerless, you know, power wireless transmission. Can it transmit through things like the uh, tree line in between here and the field? <laughs> Which is another good point, yeah. I, um, yes, you, you, the higher up you are, the more you can transmit a direct line, but for things that are line of sight, radio and microwave go through almost everything. It's weird to think that we cook with by absorbing microwaves, but they go through pretty much everything, and uh, we want to be able to transmit with those because light, as you know, goes through very little. Visible um, light. <laughs> all right. Uh, the next question is a super chat, $10, from C. Stallion. Thank you, C. Stallion. Do you think the U.S. could control the future of digital tech by regulating exports of the ultra-pure quartz needed to make computer chips, over 90% of the global supply coming from a mine in North Carolina? I hope not. Um, I mean, this is kind of comes with the rare oil things, too. People say, well, the China's got all the rare oils, and I say, no, they don't. They, they're not rare. Rare oils are very common. They're actually very common in North America. The problem is that for mining them is that you use a very biologically destructive process that ruins the local area. So it kind of comes down to how much are you willing to pay for semiconductors if you clean? And uh, that's the same kind of thing that comes up with a lot of other things like courses, ways or supplies of those. I don't really want anyone to be able to monopolize access to a core material like that or almost anything else because um, you know, that, that tends to stifle, even ignoring all sorts of problems that can come with monopoly, uh, which is another topic for somebody who is not a physicist, that's that's an economics or a civil rights issue, but just inside the innovation technology platform area, monopolies don't tend to do very well for innovation uh, and production technologies or that kind of downhill cost that we expect to have of technology improve because they're not lowering because somebody's got set price or rate on. Obviously, you can think of plenty of other examples find a different show on a different topic for more discussion about please not us. <laughs> but that has that actually leads us into a question mm -hmm. though that about space development that we had from medievalists and he wants to know when it comes to mining in space, what will be the first objective of companies? Will they want to get ice or water, iron, or would they be looking for rare minerals? And maybe the tie in on that is maybe that would alleviate some of the mm -hmm. destruction of Earth areas. Well, yeah, that is one of the things that I like about, uh, I think a lot of us like about the idea of doing mining is if you're familiar with how we mine gold on Earth, for instance, um, especially how, how we actually do it at a practical level, it usually comes attached with mercury. It's very common to find mercury with gold in the mines, and they just burn it off. And they have a lot of uh, little kids doing the work on that in Africa that will get mercury poisoning 
vaporizing gold nuggets off. Um, obviously, in space, that's less of an issue. You know, <laughs> uh, it'd be usually because you're not using slave labor to mine. But um, when we talk about a lot of these resources and how rare they are, they're still rare in space, too. It's just you don't have to rip up the landscape to get access to them. The rarest thing we actually have uh, in this solar system is ecosystem planet. So you kind of want to minimally disturb that while giving you other rare elements you want. But yeah, space mining is definitely a way that you can potentially get a lot of those rare or ecologically destructive assets, though not necessarily an easy fix across the board. You know, that's one of those keep researching across the board things. As to what we do for us, um, that depends a lot on what you're using for your drive. I tend to think that any access to ice or water in space is your first place to go for actually getting a good fuel, because if you got the gas, so to speak, to move stuff around and get your mining equipment going out there, that lets you actually do it cheaper. So ice would be nice for that. Aluminum, uh, Alice as an option would be nice, but Obviously, if we find a big pile of gold on the moon, well, we actually could economically go get that right now and bring it back, especially because the major shipping cost is to get there in terms of that being a high cost to get to the moon. Sending stuff back from the moon to Earth is a lot cheaper, and that's for your shipping costs. Is that done. All right. Reverend RV says, Earth lies in the ultraviolet habitable zone. Scientists have determined that liquid water and ultraviolet habitable zones are only congruent around yellow dwarf stars. Is this a great filter? It could be if they if the determination is correct. We want to be careful saying things like scientists have determined that. What they usually mean was that somebody had done a study or model that indicated that you would rarely find uh, you know places without that combination. If the model's right, we had the same problem with red dwarf plants, and we still don't know yet. But we thought that plants around red dwarf stars that were in the habitable zone would almost always tend to be tightly locked. Only other thing beyond that is that's probably not the case. But that was our reasoning for saying that, well, yellow dwarfs, or maybe orange dwarfs, which are more common than yellow dwarfs too, and represent that in-between zone, between red and, and uh, yellow, might be the only ones that have tightly locked um, actual plant, you know, plants around them, that they all be tightly locked around these red dwarfs. So if you can't have life on planets that isn't tightly locked, it needs to be around a yellow star. But then we say to ourselves with better modeling, that's not true. And so we're still not sure exactly what that's looking at in terms of habitability, but that was one of the reasons why only yellow stars. And we want to be kind of careful with any of our foreign paradox solutions that tend to engage in, and I forget what the word for this is at the moment, uh, the assumption that all planet is the kind of natural best conditions that, that life would tend to have just because it's the one we're on that's got life. We shouldn't just assume that that yellow star bias exists. But as to UV, that's going to be a big one for formation, not just water, which is a big one they are, that we think of, but nitrogen, a lot of these um, things which are vital to what we breathe in our atmosphere do not do well under high amounts of ultraviolet light. It sounds like I am overwhelming the volume with the questions and that you okay. are fading away. <laughs> Give us one second. So. Someone, let's try that volume now. Can you say something? Uh, yes. Would you like me to read the next question? Go ahead, yeah. Okay. So the next question is from my zombie lick. Isaac, do you think we'd already have fusion power plants feeding the grid if we had pumped a far, far larger amount of money into research, such as a couple trillion, or would the progress be similar? Uh, if we dumped a couple trillion dollars into it, I don't know that that would have, I mean... Throwing money at problems, especially resource problems, does help, but it doesn't infinitely help. And it gets you other problems with that, too. So 
you know, you double the resource funding for NASA, I don't assume we'll get into the moon in half the time. Um, but yeah, I think if we'd, well, if we got a lot stronger on nuclear and we hadn't gotten, there were reasons why, and, and good reasons is to, why we got a little bit panicked about using a power across the board. Um, I am a bit of an advocate for nuclear power, but not a, not across the board one. And, uh, had we been more for that because so much of the research overlaps, I think that we would see fusion further ahead. The biggest problem with fusion, though, is it takes us five or six years to, you know, get the end of it off any given experiment, and then another five or six years to get funding for the next level of the experiment, another five or six years to build that experiment and then check it again, even though we are not loading that huge of a thing in terms of brand new knowledge. That tends to be the slowdown. It's just very resource-intensive and requires a lot of precision. There are projects that often can't rush too much. How's our volume now, as you would say? Uh, we're still working on it. So, a question here from Thought Criminal. Do you think that you will ever make a video on the age of M, such as a future where artificially emulated minds exceed biological minds in population? I got that stuck in my head now. as House of M from Marvel Comics. Read uh, that again, please. Do you think you will ever make a video on the age of M? such as a future where artificially emulated minds exceed biological minds population. I think we've done a lot of those. Oh, we, could do, we could do an episode specific to that, to be sure, but uh, I usually tend to assume that if... if see, I don't really like to go for biological versus emulated minds. Um, we would tend to think that, really, your, your mind is emulated on the substrate of neurons already, and you're just switching the platform. Um, if it's more efficient and it works correctly, you know, if we don't, like... We have a lot we don't know yet. It is entirely possible that if we emulated a mind perfectly on a computer chip, we'd have left out some vital component that we can't scientifically detect. You know, a lot of bad sci-fi, but maybe you've got a soul or something that's not going to pop up on that, and now everybody wakes up great, except they're sociopaths, or they're crazy, or whatever. Um, following that, right? and again, we just don't know until we try that, following that, we would expect pretty much everyone to start moving on that kind of substrate or platform at some point. That might be a billion years from now before everyone's decided to make the full migration, but you know, it's a long time, but that's still a short universal timeline. So generally speaking, I would tend to assume that age is probably gonna be dominant even, but it could go a lot slower. It really depends on how you like going over that and how hard it is. It's not easy to hundred billion of them. Baru says, so what do you think that the first self-replicating machine will be used for? Um, I'm still trying to check to see the volumes back. Do you get any notes on that yet? Or? I don't know why the board on this thing always changes so much in between recordings. Uh, it, it, it sounds in here like you're letting your voice drop. Am I just letting it drop? Okay. Alright. <clears throat> so what was the question again? What do you think the first self-replicating machine will be used uh, producing amoeba. Um, the first self-replicating machine would probably be used in a lab to make more of itself. That's that's what it's going to be doing. Is going to be checking to see how much that happens, and then as soon as somebody gets that walking, everyone's going to clamp down on like crazy and say, "Now we need to let it do like a thousand generations to see whether or not it is actually going to mutate crazy or wild." That's the sort of thing you'd expect on a tiny self-replicator. The big ones aren't really going to happen unless we're packaging them up for space because. We always mean self-replicating. Mean it doesn't have a human involved with it. In practice, uh, uh, you know, like uh, a community's local economy is a self-replicating machine with the twenty or so factories in it that build most of the parts needs to sustain or repeat itself. 
and has imports coming from outside that are doing some specialized tasks, but that's true of an existing life form too. You're not producing the phosphorus that your body uses or, or the sunlight that the plant that you ate is doing. So that's probably where you see a forced real self replicators when somebody decides to try to remove as much of the human part as necessary for a clanking self-replicating system that does something pretty simple on an asteroid away from a human. Um, but in terms of little tiny self-replicating machines for Grey Goose scenarios, those would be in a lab and probably one that's got, you know, explosives or incident. That's very paranoid because things like that have that invasive quality you don't really expect from a big factory that's got dumb drones that you're watching and going the whole time. All right. Uh, this one is a lot of letters, so I'm not exactly sure who is sending the question. <laughs> But he says, do you think that we can actually achieve space exploration without much modification on our bodies in terms of cybertech or even transfer our consciousness to digital or analog data? Yes, yeah. Um, you know, the original use of the term cyborg or cybernetic organism wasn't even intended to talk about little metal implants in you. It was more thought about medical and uh, biological mutations or engineering to change somebody into a space-ready organism. Uh, all at the same time, um, you know, do we need those? Those are going to pop up. They're going to have things that people don't even see because they just become inherent to our culture, like eyeglasses. No one thinks of these as a cybernetic organism. No one's going to think of me as a cyborg if I have contact lenses that are plugged into the local augmented reality. And that still makes you pretty cyborg compared to someone who's just got a little better arm. arm. It's not that changing of a little augmented reality contact lens would be a lot more of an effect on cultural and so psychology than the law would be. Uh, do we need those to live in space? Do we need those to get to space? No, we wouldn't. I don't think we need any of those. We've only sent people to space without having those. So I think that the idea that we necessarily have to do more than that to get to other planets or even other solar systems, it might help. It might be very common. In fact, I think it will be. I think we probably turn into a pretty cyborg culture without even really thinking about it or realizing it. You know, the pacemakers, the cochlear implants, the Fitbit that just happens to be implanted into you or something like that. Those are going to kind of slowly wake their way into society and they're probably not going to be all that awe-inspiring or shocking when they happen, like most technology. But uh, do we absolutely need it? No. I mean, the all generation ship series for discussion of how we do that. Uh, is it time for a break? I'm getting enough. My wife says it's time for a break. Or we do another. It question? is. We've got quite a few questions okay. queued up, but I think we are ready for our break, and then we <laughs> will come back and get to more of those questions and the lightning round. All right. <laughs> All right. We'll be on break for a few minutes, so needless to say, it is a great time to get a drink and a snack. As a side note, I finally had a chance to catch up on some of my non-audiobook science and sci-fi reading. And three of those were sci-fi novels the authors had given me, What a Time to be Alice by G.S. Taylor, James L. Cambius's The Godel Operation from Bain Publishing, and also from Bain, Will McCarthy's Rich Man's Sky. I am pretty sure G.S. Taylor sent me that novel over a year ago, and considering it's a rare entry that has an orbital ring in it, I am sad it took me so long to get to them. I get sent quite a few books by the authors, often with personal notes about how the show influenced them, and I do try to get to all of them but it takes a lot of time. Quality of novels sent to me definitely varies, but all three of these were very good, and it was nice to have a hat trick of good books in a row, and I love Cambius's painting of a setting of proper Kardashev II scale in the 10th millennium. Big ideas. 
I know we have a lot of sci-fi writers out there and it is hard to get published, though since it comes to mind let me give a quick shout out to Bane for making such an effort to keep the doors open to new talent. I had occasion some months back to have dinner with one of their senior editors and chat about the ups and downs of the publishing world for sci-fi in the modern era and it is hard for folks to break in. Since our show began as an attempt to make something like a video wiki of megastructures and alien concepts for sci-fi authors, I always like to make sure we're giving shoutouts to good writers or to new and helping some new ones get some larger followings when their work clearly deserves it. I am principally an audiobook fan myself and of course Audible is our show's longest running sponsor, and we are their longest running continuous sponsee too apparently, so when folks ask me about getting their book better known, I usually suggest either recording an audiobook or recording a few sample chapters and posting them with your cover art on YouTube for free. It's a really good way to build a following, though obviously I'm a little biased. Another piece of advice for new authors is to remember that editors do not exist to fix your typos, and neither do I. That is supposed to be done before you start putting the book around for others to see, besides maybe your alpha reader, but no one should really see it till it is less than one typo per page. Editor's main job is to point out plot holes, boring bits, place where the phrasing needs some work, not spellchecking you, and they tend to deep six books since then that have multiple bits of spelling or grammar errors on page one. And so do I. Of course my own editors are probably laughing by now since I'd shown scripts out that often have plenty of typos in them, but that relates to me having a weekly show and not being able to look at long scripts I've personally written for days after I wrote it to be able to make good edits. I'm essentially an essayist, not a novelist, and my show is audio-video, it is not intended to be text only, and I don't post the scripts anywhere for folks intentionally. I have a perfectionist streak and the only way I can get 64 episodes done each year, averaging over 5,000 words apiece, while also recording, editing, and videoing them, is to know when to cut things off, since I have to turn out the equivalent of a novel's worth of material every two months and that's not half the work of making the whole episode, video and all. I have friends who do monthly or quarterly shows who ask me how I do it, and I've got friends who do daily shows often more than an hour in length and I ask them the same. I couldn't keep up the weekly flow without my editors and one was willing to flat out tell me when a piece of script is tripe too. Thick skin is very handy if you're a writer of any type, and a good editor needs to be willing to poke hard sometimes and call out bad writing. So I'm incredibly grateful to all the folks who volunteer their time editing my often very unpolished scripts down the years, and feel free to shoot me a Facebook friend request and message if you are a masochist with free time and want to help edit SFIA. That's not to imply a new author should let themselves spend years polishing or rewriting a book either, honestly if it's taking you more than a year of work on one to get a decent first draft ready, you probably want to be thinking about setting it aside for another story. People do write themselves into a corner a lot and without naming names, the reason many a book series slows down output is because the author isn't really sure where they want to take it anymore or has gotten bored writing that series and wants to try something else, but their audience or editors really want book 7 but they are not really feeling it to write it. Never hesitate to shelve or abandon a story or essay either, I do it quite a lot and often regret when I thought I should but chose not to. I've never regretted being a writer though, I love it, I love my format, and I'm grateful so many folks seem to enjoy it too, thank you for tuning in. Anyway, some food for thought as we get back to our show and more of your questions. And we're back. Well, I had time to get my drink and a snack, how about you? 
with my coffee, but I actually forgot to put any creamer on it, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is unfortunate for you. Yes. I had time to get a couple cookies in. All right. We have quite a few questions, and we want to get to as many of them as possible, and then we're going to save some time at the end for our lightning round. So uh, jumping right in, Phil Spooner wants to know if you think the benefits of fluorine, lithium, and hydrogen rockets outweigh the risks because of their efficiency. Biggest problem you have with any of those things right now is that they are hard to transport safely and actually not get the leaking like it's too. Same problem we have with hydrogen. I would say that if I would like to see more work done with those without, uh, I used to tend to feel there's a big regulatory barrier a lot of times with NASA, just the area to get set up. There's so much effort to testing rockets out, and I would like to see that carefully reviewed to allow that to be a little bit better for allowing people to actually test new stuff out and work on some of the, uh, the upgrades without it being such a barrier to gain. Someone says, is it possible to invade an arcology, or would it be simpler just to blow it up from orbit? It's always simpler to blow something up than to actually invade. It's the same time you have like on your cylinder. Um, you know, for those who were in the uh, Extra Galactic Sanctuaries episode, we have that brief scene there on uh, Venus where you've got some aliens, so to speak, or, you know, really human descendants of some old hive on Venus from years back who've come back to reclaim their beloved hive tower and they find their way down like 100,000 stories of it for a couple of centuries. Um, I think that finding inside an arcology it would be way worse than trench warfare, as implied by that scene. Um, and this sort of thing where you're like, well, we've taken three floors this, this decade, yay! It could be an absolute bloodbath trying to take one of those things. You know, obviously you wouldn't be fighting just what level to level, you'd be fighting outside too, you have all your neighbors who might be shooting at you if you were trying to do that, so... I think that the question comes down to, as always, it's always going to be easier to destroy it, but there could be consequences, like you don't get to have it, or your own people decide to have you shot for blowing up an oncology full of people, or your neighbors decide to turn on you too. Things are very different when you don't just have two opposed factions, but a lot of surveying folks outside. So I don't think you'd see them blow it up too often, but yeah, we may use it. Locutus of Zork, thank you for your $10 super chat. He says, do you think it is ethical to keep an AI dumb in order to keep it compliant if we have the capacity <laughs> to make it sentient? Um... What you do to somebody that's actually a person, and we'll leave blank for now how we define what a person is, because I, I, you know, I still don't have a better idea of how you really do that than I've had growing up as a kid reading Bicentennial Man by uh, Asimov and Silverborg, and um, yeah, this was a good look at it too. Um, we don't know where that line's actually at right now, and it's hard to define, but if something's already at that point, I don't think that you're actually doing anything wrong by not elevating it. I don't think that I'm putting my cat by not uplifting them to be smarter. I'm probably just saving millions of mouse lives, and you know, if those are equal to my cat's life, because I have to uplift them too, then surely I should not be making my cat smarter uh, and more able to kill mice that I need to uplift too. And, and then you get that same thing as at what point would you stop? Well, the AI is stupider than an insect. And, you know, we keep a hive, we keep, what, six hives of bees here uh, on the, on the at, out back behind the house, and uh, those have tens of thousands of bees in them. And you try very hard not to smush any, or not to hit any. And they sting you, feel bad for smacking them, but you still kill so many bees in the process of just taking care of them, tending them, trying, you know, etc. If each of those had to be considered elevated to being a human intellect or was a problem, um, that would obviously be quite the nightmare. But, uh, you know, again, that same thing should apply to AI, too. I don't think that just because you have a stupid AI out there that you're doing 
harm to it, or could be said to be doing any harm to it by not making it. And thankfully, um, stupid in the sense that they were saying are dumb is not the same as not being smart because those bees knew how to find that honey, regardless yeah. of the yeah. fact that they may not be <laughs> yeah. able to uh, <laughs> ration, rationalize on par yeah. with a human no, being. I, I was, uh, yeah, I, I, if, for those of you who know Cody Don Reed, he's one of those shows that uh, um, actually helped me get my stalking audience and gave me a lot of good advice on there. One of the things he does besides science and engineering videos is he does beekeeping. So uh, it's always fun to watch those there. But Sarah and I keep bees, as I've already mentioned, and um, I've learned a lot of tricks off of him. Uh, one of those I didn't have a chance to learn, though, was don't leave your honey after you've harvested it sitting around in your garage with the, uh, door, with open. the door open. Yeah, because those bees, we just went out to like a quick have dinner. Uh, a couple hours later, we come back and they had, they had removed like 12 pounds of honey and they picked it clean. <laughs> it was amazing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All of it. Points for hive minds, which goes to your episode on hive minds for details. Sonabella says, would building an array of orbital mirrors to cool down the planet or any part of it require international cooperation? Uh, it wouldn't hurt, um, and it depends on what you mean by cooperation. Uh, I'm not going to shoot down your solar shades uh, is cooperation, and you do need that much at least, but... The cooperation is not absolutely needed for that one, though, because, again, geostationary uh, orbits um, above a planet aren't going to block a lot of light, but won't be going over the people's territory. And for that matter, um, I can have solar shades that unfurl or furl as they pass over the Atlantic Ocean. So imagine one that's going over the Pacific Ocean from Japan to uh, to L.A. as part of its orbit. It's going to block some light on its way that's passing through over that ocean, and it's got mm, 10 minutes or so between, you know, Tokyo and L.A. Uh, it can fold itself up and then unfold itself uh, as it passes over the ocean, then contract again. And thus, it's not blocking light or anything but the international waters um, or adding more light to it. Those would be kind of hard things, I think, for someone to really make a big international instant out of that would require their cooperation if they just being stubborn. But I'll put the caveat on there saying... I would still be surprised if someone didn't make a stink about it anyway, just because they could, because I'm a little bit of a cynic about uh, international cooperation sometimes. <laughs> Thought Criminal says, Isaac, have you heard of the pure replicator scenario as a possible future? It involves the far future being dominated by entities that only replicate themselves and nothing else. Yeah, it's, it's um, kind of the extreme paperclip maximizer scenario. Mixed a bit with gravity aliens, kind of basic flavoring of the rare Earth camp, the Fermi paradox. Um, if you have machines that are basically exports at reproducing themselves and only themselves, does that not start becoming what dominates all of the life out there? And the argument on that kind of gray goo approach, that paperclip maximizer approach, is to point and say, you know, um, that is arguably what would have happened on, on this planet in terms of Darwinian evolution from. You get a self-replicator because it's all they did, right? So if a self-replicator only ever does that, then either you would have to include us as counting to that, or you'd say, look, that diversified into what we are now, which I would say is not a pure self-replicator. At least not the way that people mean that. It's really not the main focus of what we do. Or maybe it's in the background, but it's not the day-to-day -day thing. So uh, that's an iffy theory in that kind of context, but there's a lot more details to it that we don't have now. Simon Farmer, thank you for your super chat, $10, and for coming back. I know uh, he's a regular fan. He says, your channel is ideal for usage of AI imagery. Will you utilize the new developments in image generation in your videos? Um, 
eventually i'm sure uh, at the moment a lot of times we have well we have a lot of animators who do help out on the show most of our images um are actually stock footage uh or auto animations because again even pixar would have problems keeping up with a 30 minutes uh per week show of, of animation but uh obviously anything that's lose that is is very nice but a lot of times we have that kind of like a lot of people use the same footage from some video game for instance for their entire show just kind of running clips that while they you know let's play videos for instance um i try to make sure whatever we're doing is 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 best it can fit the content that we got going on for the screen of time but uh if they can get us more footage that's more accurate than more appropriate to whatever we're doing that's something i would love yeah i can do that in the future that would be great too <laughs> sanabello can doppler effect be used as a trick to reflect gamma radiation for instance, by accelerating mirrors to relativistic speed relative to the source. Well, one of the problems we have with uh, reflecting of gamma rays, of course, is, is that it really doesn't interact with the, you know, the, the wavelengths of light or small in the atoms involved. Now, of course, one way to get around that, and we'd love to have a gamma ray mirror, basically unlock fusion almost automatically if you could get that working. Um, but you could redshift, as you're suggesting there. You take that mirror and you hold that away from the source of gamma radiation at a ridiculously high speed, which the useful there would have to be a Lorentz force of somewhere around what? Well, I guess you could get maybe a gamma of a thousand. Um, and uh, if you can do that, you would have some very impressively cool uh, spaceships you could send between galaxies. So that's the problem there. Is there's a little bit too much redshift required for that. Would it work? Yes. Yeah, it would work. But remember, at that point in time, your mirror's going away at a fraction of the speed of light that's like 99.99. And that's not really going to make a stable out of, I would think. So, but it would work. Tricks like that do work. What do you mind a black hole can work too? So here's an interesting one from Modern Solutions. In slower than light universes, could an imperial Terra ever compel one of its first dozen colonies militarily to pay tribute given the amount of enormous lags, light lags, travel time, and defender advantage? Um, the biggest advantage you have in a case like that is, well, one, sheer numbers. There's a possibility that when a colony ship gets to Alpha Centauri and, say, the you know, 2300 AD, uh, that we already have good enough self-replicating technology that they'll be able to get there and instantly turn that place into a fortress Dyson swarm within a century. Um, and that, that, though, means that back here on Earth we have at least that same level of technology, which means that we've long since converted ours into that. And one of the things you have going on is an advantage of a situation like that is you could say to someone, um, you know, that, that first strike kind of thing, if we see you building anything that you could complete faster than we could send, you know, see that and send a vaporizing pulse of Dyson swarm-powered micro-Dyson beam to kill you, we will fire. This is going to be set to be done automatically. And then they, they can't do anything they could build in that timeline. That is... Um, not very easy to maintain, ignoring the ethics of that, obviously. So, yes, you can do things like that. Yes, you could have, um, you know, as an example, if you want to keep a civilization from building very complicated advanced technologies that are dangerous, you might flood the entire planet or solar system with little nanomachines that monitor for that and simply destroy such technologies on the side if somebody tries to build them, or even the scientific experiments that would let you go that direction. So, yes, it is possible. Practical... I don't think you'd be able to do more than maybe maybe a light century at most, and honestly, even other sources are kind of iffy. Or galaxy, I just don't see that happening, but theoretically possible. 
and they might be very inventive just because one's a tyrant doesn't mean one isn't clever. <laughs> Lore Horbeck, could a gyroton be used to print houses on Mars by melting the soil above um, using sound above 250 decibels? Mm, I'm not sure. I, that's not my zone. I'm really bad with anything involving audio in terms of terms of getting the microphones to work. Since I can't get those to work, I probably I got be speculating too much on what we could do with sonar technology. <laughs> um, in theory, if you have the right frequencies, you could probably get a lot of things to fracture more easily or be shaped more easily. But that's outside of my wheelhouse. So I'm gonna. Have... Um. Let's see. Scott Seabrook says, "Hey Isaac, you have an AC." ME 3D printer out in the asteroid belt that breaks after a single use. What will you make? Hmm. I don't know those models of printers well enough to know what I could make with them. Uh, I will therefore not say that I would make print another one of itself. <laughs> uh, but it broke already, yeah. so maybe it's kind of like one of those riddles we were reading yeah. the other night. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're doing brain teasers to keep ourselves preoccupied. <laughs> Um, uh, let's see. This is not the preferred answer. Please select yeah, the other Yeah, there are many correct answers you come up with. Uh, <laughs> this is not the right. The standardized test does not accept this answer. Um, I think that in most contexts, what you're going to want to do is whatever's going to buy you the most time to do other things by hand, like repair the printer. So you would probably do something that lets you breathe oxygen. If you can have it print something that lets you ionize oxygen or solar panel, whatever, that would be the way you'd be going. And Mike Ikari says, so what do you think the steps are that will lead to a self-replicating technology and possible ways that we can get there? Um, <clears throat> there's always those two paths on that. The one is light lag issue, where you can have a human in light lag. And that's, that works fine for the big clanking self-replicator, which for show purposes, a clanking self-replicator is usually a really big ecosystem of machinery involved together that would simply happen to be able to produce uh, more of itself as a whole like a giant factory with drones, etc., um, that was producing more of some product. Walmart could be argued to self-replicating, clanking self-replicating, I mean, the actual stores as distribution chain. Um, but uh, in terms of that being the big-sized one, the small-sized ones, that might turn out to be really easy. And again, if you want to make a self-replicating machine, take an amoeba uh, and do whatever is necessary to officially call it machine as opposed to a life form, and there you go. Um, if we are able to self-replicate, then those are very different wheelhouse of why you would do it and what you for. One's being done because you don't feel you can have a human there to oversee it, or trust one, perhaps, uh, often from light lag, and the other is because you make a billion of itself. It's not that I need a self-replicating tiny machine to make tiny machines inside my body, it's that we don't think we can print a billion of them uh, effectively economically, because they can do it themselves. But I think in a lot of cases what you see instead is a a micro-sized machine you can implant in somebody that would make hundreds of other machines that could make hundreds of other machines smaller, each of which was then an eco. I always tend to think of these things with nanotechnology or any other ones an ecosystem, not a single speed. That's probably where that's going. Next. Yeah, so not to, <laughs> not to beat a dead horse here, but Valdarg wants to know if it has to create perfect copies to count, perfect copies of itself to count as a self-replicator. Our only example of a self-replicating organisms that we have on this planet are all things that do not create perfect copies of themselves. Mutation, uh, yeah, mutation, 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 mutation. That's actually kind of enshrined inside things which engage in DNA mixing as opposed to mitosis. So, Amlan Mahanti says, "When is the earliest that we can achieve post 
scarcity? Um, I mean, that's one of those ones where it depends so much on how you define it. <clears throat> For channel regulars, you know, what we usually say with post-scarcity is inside a finite universe, where you can never really have scarcity minimization, just because there's always be limited things like, even if I had an infant supply of energy, I can only have so much energy in area without causing a black hole, and only one person could be the NFL champion that year anyway, so there's a scarcity on that resource. We instead we define that as kind of a lack of anxiety in almost everybody about their access to survival needs, including very complicated ones high up the Maslow's hierarchy, like you know uh, finding a partner in life or uh, feeling self-actualized with a purpose and a goal. That's kind of our notion of what qualifies post scarcity is how many of those they can hit. In many ways, we already are post scarcity. If you don't live in a desert, you are not. You you are not. You are post scarcity on water. Your ability to find water to live off of is not a source of great stress. You know, it might be in the background, for instance. I, I, before I was a farmer, I never really cared how often it rained. You know, there was always enough to drink from that's still not a problem. Um, After planting our orchard this year and having oh, to water it. <clears throat> yes. As a great reminder, they were about to go out and water it again. Um, but, uh, you know, that, those are examples of how that can change. And that's why you said anxiety mechanism for it. I would tend to argue that we already exist in the early stages of post scarcity on some things. And that it's not a marker, it's not a discrete line, but that each of those personal needs, psychological, physical, social, survival, every time you hit those, and the better you hit them, the more you move up post-scarcity. And we have probably already met one for some time. At, at least levels. in some areas. Yeah, and at very basic levels. Uh, Phil Spooner says that one theme in the Apple TV Plus show for all mankind mm -hmm. is that people enjoy employed in the oil and coal industries are angry at NASA and Fusion Energy takes their jobs. Would this occur in real life? I imagine it probably already does. Um, ask the folks in West Virginia how they feel about folks uh, who uh, do things to coal subsidies or uh, put uh, fines on it. And really the morality of that, obviously, there's someone's, you mess with someone's livelihood, they're going to be upset you, rightly or wrongly. And, of course, there's always that Obi-Wan Kenobi thing from a certain point of view. Um, so, yeah, people can be angry about that. Um, we always say in things like that is that's true for solo too. You have folks who are very into solo. I'm myself a big fan of solo, who are furious at nuclear or vice versa because they 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 are funding dollars, they are subsidies, whatever it is, screw with their ability to work on that. Same for ethanol. Um, we will leave it academic, in which cases that anger is justified and how productive it is overall to be angry. Gravitational no, gravity Gravitationi Manavar. Isaac, what do you think of traveling the solar system via the interplanetary transport network using the Lagrange points to save fuel? Um, see how, because we're getting low on time here, see our episode, Interplanetary Cyclos and Interstellar Trade, uh, for more on that, as well as a becoming interstellar, interplanetary species one, because we talk about those, the cyclo fortresses a lot there, and I, I love the idea personally, but I think that's always going to be your cruise ship way, as not your, uh, not your plane or train kind of way. Are you ready for the lightning round? Let's start that lightning round. Okay, because <clears throat> I've been trying to uh, save us some questions for <laughs> the lightning round specifically here, and we've had a lot of questions that we weren't able to get to, so hopefully we can at least answer a few of them in uh, this round here. So, Dan O'Connell, thank you so much for your super chat of $5. In light of your topic poll, do you ever think personal spaceships will be a reality? Quite probably. It depends on how post-scarce we get, but uh, if you want more details on one way you could do that, see episode on beam-powered spaceships for more details, because that's probably how you do them for planet-bound. 
Adrian Burchell wants to know how easy it is to cross almost identical reality and dimension. I don't know. Uh, probably very hard. <laughs> Why should have leakage between them a lot? Valdarg says, in some stories where VR is used, considering that VR is likely to be increasingly useful, it has often had the feature that the VR virtual reality world experiences time faster than real time. Is this possible? Yes, assuming the people inside it can actually experience that time. It's just you're hitting the fast forward button on it. If you hit fast forward on people's brains at the same time and keep the time you write, then you have a faster subjective time awareness, what we call frame jacking, which I think is from Dennis Taylor originally, but I, I, I don't know friend, so I assume he invented the tool. <laughs> Thought Criminal wants to know what you think the effect will be in the geopolitical and social effect of genetically engineering embryos. And I guess it was a very long question, so... Uh, we're summarizing. Can you re summarize that for me real quick? What do you think the effect will be on the geopolitical and social effect of genetically engineering embryos? Uh, I think that some countries will accuse other countries of trying to create master races that will going to destroy them economically, and others will say it's none of our business, and you'll have little tiny islands that uh, specialize in doing it for people as a come here and have your genetically engineered child and go back home without anyone knowing. I think you'll have a lot of messes from doing that, but morally it's copy. I'd say that you're likely to see it happen in the next 50 Crossover Maniac, thank you for your $5 super chat. If you see fully formed spiral galaxies at the edge of what is visible <laughs> for JWST, would this be a sign that our universe is older than 13.7 times 9 into the ninth power years old? Right. Uh, if we find galaxies that appear to be 13.4 billion years old that are already fully formed, 100 billion star, you know, modern ones, it's the same size real quick. Fully formed is assuming that our current galaxy is fully formed. Realistically, the vast majority of time that our galaxy has been eating other galaxies, it's like the 50 that we have measured so far, 50 galaxies we, that we think of having consumed, we still got about 30 more to go. And all of them have been gobbling stuff up too. And those are the ones that are locally you know, gravitationally bound area, that collection of a couple trillion stars is probably what you think of as a fully formed galaxy. If we see those existing 13.4 billion light years away, though that's not quite how that works, that would be a sign that we probably had messed up some piece of our analysis. Probably not the actual age, though, probably the formation times. Rami Ahmad says, a question from Astrogate. Is the speed of light always the same throughout space and time? No. In the far universe or the early universe? We don't know. It could be that the speed of light has actually changed over time, but since that's our major way of seeing how fast the clock goes, when you're engaging in relativistic situations, you can't look at your own personal timepiece and say, oh, look, time's going slow, because you're going slow too. It's so that frame jacking thing. Most of our ways of telling how old the universe are have to do with the speed of light. That gets a little tricky. That said, um, we have no particular reason to think it has changed. And in many ways, it wouldn't have mattered because the time is progressing it in concordance with that light. Uh, but uh, time does, I mean, the light does not move the same in all places at all the same speeds, neither does time. So they do vary. Dios mio, King, thank you for your two pounds. The speed of light is constant, does not appear to vary. Go ahead, sorry. <laughs> Dios mio, King, thank you for your two pound super chat. High or low Atmoship Racing Leagues, how would it work? Um, hmm. Very coolly, I should think. Uh, the, the Sarah is more the pilot in the family than I am. Uh, she actually enjoys flying a lot more than I do. So, um, I, I think I would love to be able to actually just do a long dive from you know, like 100 kilometers up and then come down towards the planet. I think you'd probably have a lot of regulation, though, about that because you're having postal racing ships that were going at hypersonic speed. A lot of the, the postal spaceships might be issy. But, um, they do tend to frown cool. on that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Horace the Great, <laughs> you, thank you. You're not than NASCAR if they collided. <laughs> Horace the Great, thank you for your $10 super chat. Can you create a basement universe, then come out from wormhole to the same universe, such as a Tipler Oracle? Um, <clears throat> I don't know that you could, well, try to read that quickly. Basement universe is usually thought of as the one that would be at the bottom of a number of universes below. So I'm simulating universes or creating universes as, you know, I've made a VR universe whose people inside it make another VR universe, and you just keep going. See the Rick and Morty episode, I don't know if I see Rick and Morty a lot, I think it's season 2, episode 6, for more discussion of that kind of concept, but I don't think you could just jump out of a basement universe into the top layer unless you access that printer they have the top layer and print it yourself. That should work just fine. Dragon King says, how many civilizations do you think are in the universe? Um, 7,000 in the absorbable universe, in accordance to the gravity aliens theory. Uh, I, I, I mean, that's, that's a bit of a loose number, but I, I did like Robin Hanson's calculations. Of it. So we'll go with 7,000. There are eventually 7,000 extragalactic gravity alien civilizations, of which we all number 4,000 or so. Simon Farmer <laughs> says, what sci-fi novel will you run on the holodeck first? Oh, wow. Um... <clears throat> That's tricky because there are so many places I don't think I'd want to experience. Like, you don't really want to jump into Warhammer 40k even as a completely safe observer. <laughs> you might get mentally scarred. Um, the one I'd most want to see, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Dune. Maybe, but <laughs> uh, probably, probably Foundation for me personally. Harry Reid says, "What do you think?" Actually, of let me correct that, Simon. It would be a fantasy novel for sure. I'd, I'd really rather run around someplace like Forgotten Realms or Dragonlance. It's a sci-fi I can think of. That'd be more cool. <laughs> Go ahead. Have you completed your answer? Yes, I completed my answer. <laughs> Henry Reid says, "What do you think of the pyramids on Mars?" Um, I think that they are not probably going to turn out to be real. Um, but you know, we, we never, I'm never going to complain about going and inspecting these things in more detail. Folks who feel that they exist are absolutely welcome to start up a fund to help get those inspected more closely, and then we can get the answer for sure. Welcome back, Isaac Bordeaux, and he wants to know if you have any thoughts on the new James Webb photos. Very nice. I, I, I think they're, they they're, they're seeing so many jokes on those. Yeah, they're very nice. They, they are gorgeous photos, and they are giving us so much better resolution. I keep thinking of that meme that shows the horsehead nebula by, as seen by Hubble, and then the one by James Webb that's got an actual horse's head up there. But they're just, they're amazing. It was, I'm not going to say it was worth the wait, it was, but as one of those people who was just waiting impatiently for like a decade for that thing to get up there, it was so nice to finally get those results. Dominic B., thank you for your $1.99, or one, your two-pound you donation. <laughs> thank you, yes. And thank he, you for your donation, I just say tribute. You did. <laughs> anyway, he sent us a heart logo with the word thanks. We appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, driving in... I've not got enough sleep recently. <laughs> You're looking a little... Go ahead and give me okay, the question. Can we do a few more lightning rounds, or do we need to... Oh, let's uh... keep going. Yeah. Okay. Driving in Luton. Could virtual particles interacting with the gluon field be the answer to dark matter? Um, yes, though, again, I, I, I tend to really think it is going to be something as simple as something very like a neutrino that is a lot heavier uh, and pretty much only gets popped out during early, early cosmological situations or Planck energies. All right. Speaking of tribute, <clears throat> John Sigard, thank you for your $20 super chat. He thank says, <laughs> he hijacked this from divide by zero, get cake. If you were appointed a space czar with an unlimited budget to make life multiplanetary as soon as possible, what five areas would you start investing into, say you had 50 years? 
if I had 50 euros on that end and I could invest in five areas specifically, um, I mean, it'd almost all be energy. It would almost always be energy because that's, you know, I'd probably throw it in on uh, nuclear, fusion, and fission. I'll count those as two separate ones. Batteries uh, and clean molten salt type options, which are not electrical batteries, obviously. Uh, and then solar, um, probably solar thermal as well. But energy and then just safe automation regulation would probably be the other area because I think that that's a technology that's going to improve and the biggest area we have is the hurdle of badly regulating it you know too much or in the wrong ways or Vera Fleck wants to know if the CMB could be the rest glow of a much bigger unobservable universe um I mean probably not it, it's it's the CMB as we see it right now is the highly redshifted remains of the universe is much more compact, at least all chunk of it, and uh, that's an ever-expanding chunk because we're seeing a new piece of space that's emerging, I mean, not, that is just then reaching us. And uh, so in a way, yes, that is the, the, the bigger universe that's reaching us, but there'll be no way for that light to have reached us from outside those spots unless we weren't expanding, and the thing is there's too many things that point towards that being the case. We could have some big flaw in terms of how we look at this stuff. I, I love the alternative theory for like what's what could make the Big Bang wrong, for instance, or what the options are. But I mean, a hand wave sign to speed up. I don't think so. I think it's exactly what we tend to guess it would be. I think I'm only going to be able to fit two more questions in here since uh, our five-minute lightning round has turned into 12. <laughs> Spock Borg 5 says, Say you're a civilization that managed to survive the heat death of the universe. Can you put at least some of your population into stasis and have them awake when a new universe is born? Uh, read the novel Tau Zero for some options on that that go in more detail. But if you can survive the heat death of the universe, there's probably a lot of things you can do that I can't think of. So we'll go with Yes. <laughs> And Brandon Knapp says, in evacuating Earth, you say the number of rockets required would dis decimate Earth with heat. Would the same theoretical fleet's heat landing on Mars assist in its terraforming or destroy it too? Probably, probably destroy it too. Uh, you know, as we found, we were dumping, and, and this has to do with how much you're evacuating the planet as opposed to individual people. Are you trying to like evacuate the eco entire ecology? But uh, with Mars, we found that if you just try to add ice to it too fast, like comets of ice landing on the thing to give it oceans, um, at a you know, speed of less than a century, you'd be boiling the stuff off by the sheer amount of heat, kill everything as it gains speed as it entered. So, uh, probably, yeah. Before you end, I, I just had we to say, yeah, we got a JP Ramirez. Thank you for your super chat. He says, Thank you for all your hard work. Oh, thank you very much. And also, Sir Domblinson, also a super chat, says, Isaac, if given the chance to do a TED talk, TED talk what topic would you choose and why? Hmm. <laughs> All right, we stumped him. <laughs> On that note, have a great week, and we'll see you next month. <laughs> <laughs> I have a ton of episodes. I, if I could pick one single topic to do, right, I wouldn't have a whole hundred some episodes out there. <laughs> Maybe make structures. All right, we'll go ahead and close out there. I'm sorry I can get to everyone's questions today, and if I missed it or misunderstood it, uh, just... Put it in the comment section, and I'll try to get you an answer inside the next 24 hours or so. Thank you, everybody, so much for tuning in. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah, for any questions. Thanks to our mods, as usual. And if you didn't already vote in that Reddit poll, please head over there and, and cast your vote in that to help decide for an episode. That Reddit base poll here on the community tab. Then go visit our Reddit forum. And if you still want to hear more of me talking live, uh, there is that interview by Ben Sinclair linked in the episode description of this live stream. Thank you, everyone, for joining us so much. And... We'll see you Have next time. Have a great time. week. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Wait a minute, I forgot to hit the outro button. So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website, IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you Thursday.